1 Corinthians chapter 9. It's on screen there so we can read this together as we go. I'm going to overlap with, a bit with where Phil went last week and uh, just to um, tell a bit of a, a picture today. So verse 9. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, or thieves, or the greedy, or drunkards, or slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, keep the slide up, mate. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said that two will become one flesh. But if whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now, it's school holidays, and some of us might be a little bit white and terror going the subject matter. And kids, um, I acknowledge there is an elephant in the room. (laughs) It's in the passage here. There's an elephant in the room. It was there the last time I got up as well. (laughs) I'm going to let that linger in the background a bit till later on today. The elephant in the room is referred to loosely about eight times in what is read. But something greater is spoken of nearly double that. And I'm going to start with that first. So we're going to let that linger into the background there, let that disappear into the horizon, and we'll just get to the street of ancient Corinth again. We'll ignore the elephant for one moment, and we're going to focus on the big picture here. God. Have you noticed how much was spoken of in there? His kingdom, His Son, His Spirit, His standard, His work in our lives. Those are the things that bookend this passage, front and back. So I'm going to unfold this passage by exploring what God has done first. And then we'll look at the way of life that is offer on offer to us as a result of that. At the start of this passage, we are told that God has a kingdom. This has been lightly mentioned earlier in this passage. But in this case, we have some very clear statements about what it takes for a human being to gain citizenship of this kingdom that God has.
We are told here that it will be an inheritance for a distinct group of people. When we look at how he's written this, we can deduct from this that the people that inherit this kingdom will be people who carry and conduct themselves a certain way. It will be people who put the interests of others first. It will be people who actively choose right. It will be people who neither abuse others nor themselves. And it's not an impossible dream. God has a deliberate plan to ensure that humans are able to join him in his kingdom. The people who live the opposite of what I just spoke about are given names and titles in this passage. Now, this list, if we read this and go, oh, gee, this is a big list of sins not to do, do's and don'ts, I think we kind of miss just the gravity of that. We, you know, if we're just trying to live about what we do and don't do, try harder, do better, and not look at the why behind some of these things, and also understand that this list is not exhaustive. There's a lot more wrong things we could be doing. But Paul is writing specifically to the Corinthian people here. But when you think about the effect these things have, consider this. We have adultery, we've got sexual immorality, and we've got uh, the, the Homosexual Act as well mentioned in there. Now, after years of debate and, and fighting over different scholars, that's the conclusion of it. These things are very much outside what is God's sacred design for that particular behavior. Alongside these areas of immorality are those that direct their worship to anything but God. And we've also got thieves and we've got swindlers here. Now think of, think of the victims of crime that happens every time someone steals from you. Think of the, the, the harm that is done to other people with that sort of stuff. I'll point out in the modern West that you don't have to have a statue of Buddha on your mantelpiece to be able to, to be an idolater today, do we? There's a lot of things that we know how to worship aside from God. There's even things that we sometimes even conveniently overlook at times. Greed, gluttony. Who has done a Bible study on gluttony about how to actually, you know? And then I look in the mirror and I'm like, oh boy. In Colossians 3, Paul would later write that greed and idolatry are synonymous. We can eat to excess while others go hungry and we don't give it a moment's thought sometimes. I enjoyed a great meal at the Mac last night and I wasn't thinking about Africa. We've got drunkards, people who refuse to deal with addictions, people who lose control. They put themselves and others at risk. And they're slanderers, people willing to bring harm to the reputation of others. There's a good reason why these things are not right in the eyes of God. When we consider the effect these things have on humanity, we begin to see that Jesus' kingdom vision is not in line with that. In his kingdom, those things are not to be, will not take place. There will not be any victims in his kingdom. There will not be harm done to ourselves or to each other in that kingdom. The effects of sin as we know it won't be a thing. The way of life and eternity is a place where everybody will flourish. And we pursue holiness as Christians in light of that fact. 
We pursue the, the way that it is going to be because we demonstrate the kingdom that way and we demonstrate that we are in the kingdom because of how we conduct ourselves. We also read something really cool in this. We think of that list that, that, that Paul has laid out, those different vices, those different actions, those different things that we know to be sinful. And he's describing Corinth to a T. He's describing the way that city conducts itself. He's thinking of the patronage and, and the abuses. He's thinking of the, 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 the different things going on, the, the, the immorality and that sort of stuff. And he's laid it out there. The way the city conducts itself is not going to inherit the kingdom. But out of that gene pool, God would actively locate and find a people who would come under his reign and would be able to have his inheritance. And Paul tells Corinth that as he addresses the church, that is exactly what Christ has done in their midst. They have been called out of those things. And he says, such as some of you were. In other words, you were once a swindler, but now you are in the kingdom. You are no longer that. Once you were an idolater, but now you are in Christ. You're in the kingdom. It's, it's actually calling people out of that into something new. He says, see that immoral gene pool I just described? That's precisely what some of you were but he changed the inheritance they were bound for. When God found them, they were dirty, but through the work of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, they were washed clean. That's the phrase Paul uses here. When God found them, they were doing their own thing and they were floundering. But Paul says now they were sanctified, made holy, set apart, restored to their actual purpose of glorifying him. And Paul writes, while they were guilty of sin, God justified them he's already pronounced them not guilty and they have an assurance that this is what they will hear when the kingdom comes in full and christ is before them as the perfect judge the other end of this passage shows the depth of god's commitment to this position the corinthians hold you have been bought with a price in other words, for God's kingdom to be populated with humans to inherit this, God made a costly purchase. And he did that knowing that anything short of divine royal blood would not be enough. Because of that purchase, we became God's and he makes us his dwelling place, both individually and collectively. Does that blow your mind? God made us a community chosen by him, even though we were all those other things. That should blow our mind. That should capture us. That should leave us in awe. It should blow us away. Unfortunately, this mind-blowing revelation was being lost on the Corinthians. In between these bookends of God's work, we have a Corinthian Christian response to this. 
And it's summed up in a couple of Corinthian church catchphrases that Paul refers to here. It's my right to do whatever I want. And food for the stomach and stomach for food, God's going to destroy it all. The first mantra here looks for a creative way to push Christian freedom to the limit. It's a way of looking for the extremities of expression. And it may even be their way of using Paul's own teaching against him. Paul was a stickler for promoting the freedoms a Christian had, particularly in comparison with his own Jewish heritage. This will get spoken of later in this letter. And 2 Corinthians 3 also talks about this, where he indicates that the Holy Spirit unveils the law so we can follow it in freedom. Throughout the New Testament, we see echoes of that which is written in Jeremiah 31. A new covenant would come. The law no longer written on stone, but on hearts. It's the law is just the same. It's just placed in a better place. The Lord who was once distant would now be known at close quarters. The Mosaic way, all its ceremonial requirements would be done away with and a freedom would come. But the spirit that comes in us would unveil the law. He would reveal God's holy law. God's holy standard still stands. And the spirit of Christ who dwells in us and in our midst would inspire and empower us to live those standards out. There is freedom in Christ, but this is given so that we may know and serve God freely. Paul's already fleshed this out in his earliest letter, Galatians 5.13. You are called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, but rather serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. The Corinthians appear to have a different take on this. If I'm free through Christ and I'm free from this law that the Jews heavily stick to, then that means I'm free to do whatever I want. How many people here have heard the phrase, even in the church, it's my right. I have a right to be happy. I have a right to do what I want. I have a right to uh, live out exactly as I please. It's my right. We're big at demanding our rights, aren't we? So it's, we're big in that in society and we're a little bit like that in church too at times. It's my right. I have every right to be happy. Well, happy is such a subjective thing. How can, how can that really be a right? The other one echoes the pagan understanding that the flesh and the spiritual realm are separate entities. Now, to a degree, there's a bit of truth in that, all right? You know, the skin sleeping bag I'm in right now, you know, is going to, you know, it's going to, you know left to its own devices when I'm, when I'm gone, when I pass away and there's a, you know, a headstone there. What's left of this will decay and will rot. We know that. It also acknowledges a spiritual element that will live on beyond that time. Even the pagans understood that there was some sort of afterlife going on. But where Paul and the pagans differ is how the idea of afterlife plays out. The pagans believed that you could use and abuse this body. You could do whatever you want with it because the afterlife does not involve anything physical. 
Some went as far as to say, how could the body which is evil actually stand up? It started with food and drink, the Epicurean sort of thing. Eat, drink, be merry. The church had gone a little bit poetic with this. And they were extending this phrase to go towards sexual behavior as well. In response to these Corinthian mantras, Paul appeals to what the Spirit might be wanting to say to that. Yes, there is freedom. But can we as believers really do as we want? Have you considered that abusing this freedom might not be beneficial? I can do what I want, but not everything is beneficial, he says. In fact, have you considered that some of the things you're free to do are in fact harmful? Have you considered who is really in charge as you express this freedom in such extreme ways? Paul says, I will not be mastered by anything. In other words, indulging our freedom too much may actually make us captive again. The Bible says that he who sins is a slave to sin. I'm free to do what I want, but then you indulge your freedom and all of a sudden we become captive to the thing we were free to do. And Paul goes on to say, while we're at it, have you considered what being a believer really means for life beyond this one? The pagan says it's all going to rot and decay. <laughs> the Christian in the 1980s with their pre- premillennial theology used to say it's all going to burn. <laughs> Remember that phrase? <laughs> the apostle here says one day it's going to be raised up. This gets fleshed out in chapter 15. But Paul is putting the idea out here of a physical resurrection for the final day. This is one of the great mysteries of our faith to try to get our heads around. But we are to understand, because there is going to be a physical resurrection, that God is deeply and intimately concerned, not just with our spirit, but what we do with our bodies as well. Jesus' resurrection was simply the first of what is to come. And it's amazing how many believers today have no clue about this. Eternity is not about floating around in some ambiguous spiritual state, hanging on clouds and playing harps. It has a very physical expression. A risen human being ascended to heaven in Acts. As risen humans, we will face him as our judge. As risen people, we will inhabit and inherit the kingdom. This chapter calls us to consider how our future looks, how our eternal future looks, and live like that now. This is what demonstrating the kingdom is all about. At the start of the chapter, we looked. Phil looked at this. We're told we're going to play a part in judging fallen angels and judging the world. For that reason, taking your brothers and sisters in the church to court is to be off the table. 
Why? Because the kingdom is a reconciled place. Therefore, seek that and demonstrate that amongst our kingdom, family, and community. Going on from that, our eternal future involves a physical body which is set apart for the Lord. That's how it's going to be. Therefore, living like that now is to be the case. And this further demonstrates the kingdom. This sort of thinking can have a number of applications. It can apply to our diets and our personal care. This passage personally challenges me to put down the fork and shed a few kilos, put a few inches on my arm and chest. It can apply to the vices of life. It can talk about our alcohol use and the convictions we set. I used to cringe when my first pastor used to tell believers to stop smoking. Now, I've got no problem with that. I think it's an unhealthy habit. It's good to not smoke. Your lungs will thank you. But they used this verse as ammunition. And I thought it was a bit of a stretch to link frequenting a brothel with having a smoke. But when I consider the concept of God's concern with our bodies now in his expression of his kingdom, I see more merit in that than I once did. When I see the phrase, honor God with our bodies, I see a number of outlets that that can be looked at in our lives. There can, however, be no doubt. And these are my last few paragraphs. This is where the elephant comes back in. There can be no doubt that the lesson Paul presents definitely has an application in the area of moral sexual behavior. To address this matter, Paul doesn't go to Leviticus or any of the legal parts of the Pentateuch. He doesn't pull out the thou shalt nots of the Old Testament in order to get this behavior corrected. He does quote Moses though. Instead, he appeals to the order of creation. Genesis 2.24. He speaks of the time in history where all that God made was good and sin had not made its presence felt on the earth yet. Mankind once knew this way of life and then lost it. But the restored kingdom takes us back to that place. Modern commentators suggest the fully realized kingdom is a restoration of the way of Eden. And in that time in history, we read that sex and marriage was in its most pure place. And in that setting, a man would leave his folks, would cleave to his wife, and as Paul quotes, the two become one flesh. And in the creation order before the fall, this is what God called good. He appeals to that verse and then we take on board everything else he said. Sum it up like this. There is an inheritance waiting. And although you in your own way were not qualified to enter it, you were given access through the grace of God and the work of the cross. This is an eternal kingdom that we anticipate through faith we're in it already and we're called to live in such a way as to demonstrate this kingdom 
that we are in. We're purchased by God at the price of His Son. We're going to be physically raised just as Christ was. And we're already members of Christ's body. We are the dwelling place of God through the Holy Spirit. All that. And one day we are going to be restored to that place where God says it is good. When you take all that we have and the position that we hold and who we are, Paul asks him a question. Do you really think that such a person should be found taking what God made good and abusing it in an unordained sexual expression? In case they were still missing it, he answers for them. No, never. Literally, run away from that stuff. Flee fornication, it says. Run away. Leave the scene as quick as you can. He may be calling back to Joseph there. You know, part of his, re- part of his wife is reaching out for him and he just chucks his coat, leaves it in her hand and runs. You're taking Jesus into that situation because he's dwelling here. He doesn't want to be there. And as kingdom people, we have no business being there ourselves. Paul notes that sexual sin is a unique thing in the scheme of things. It's not that it's more sinful than something else. We can't trivialize it that way. Why can't we do that? Because Jesus died for every sin. Every sin required the blood of Christ to be paid. To pay, Jesus paid for every sin the same way. But it is, however, a significantly harmful thing to our person. Physically, psychologically, spiritually. And Paul is capturing this thinking here. Done outside the way God designed it. It's outside the design. It can be harmful. And doing such harm to ourselves and facilitating that harm in the people we do this with. In Corinthians' case, in a house of ill repute, even a pagan temple. Today at an office liaison, last week at the AFL, at a bar, by ourselves in a computer mouse. These are things that kingdom people simply do not do. In fact, the radical kingdom way and radical kingdom people bring healing and justice to those things instead. Like my friend in Melbourne who sets up rescue homes in Thailand to rescue people from that trade. Like people who are setting up accountability groups to help the three quarters of men who are addicted to to adult entertainment. Those sorts of things that Christians are initiating to be able to bring healing and, and restoration in this field. It's amazing how many people are rising up at this time to bring justice and healing to this regard instead of facilitating the problem. I'm going to leave it there for today. I'm going to actually take some time to, for us to consider what the Lord might want to say to us.